0: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and NA, member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Albert Einstein once said, The only thing you absolutely have to know is the location of the library. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books Network with the Van Leer Jerusalem series on ideas. I'm Renee Garfinkel, your host. Our David Lankis, the Virginia and Charles Bowden Professor of Librarianship at the University of Texas at Austin School of Information, is with us today to talk about his important book, The New Librarianship Field Guide. David Lankis, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Before we talk about your book, David, um, tell us something about yourself. What events or people in your life led to your love of libraries?
1: <laughs> it's an interesting story. I went to um, the university because I was going to be an illustrator. Uh, and while I was there, sort of fell in love with how technology can be used in teaching and learning um, and started working with a professor over in the information school, which I had no idea what an information school was. This was in the early, or this was in the, yeah, like 1990. So, um, and uh, when I finished my undergraduate degree, uh, this professor, Mike Nyland said, so what are you going to do now? And I said, I have no idea. He said, well, come into our doctoral program. And I said, sure, because I was too young to know better. And um, there I started working with an absolutely fabulous individual, Mike Eisenberg, um, who became my doctoral advisee. And he sold the, 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 the idea of librarianship, the value of librarianship, the power of librarianship to me. And that was part of what he was doing as his career as well. And I got the bug. And as I was approaching different questions, it got me interested in technology, in ethics, in values, in access to information. I kept coming back to the same community that was addressing these topics in ways that I found interesting, which were librarians, and so um, that's how I got into it. I'm, I'm, uh, Jim Jim Neal for, once came up with a phrase of being a feral librarian, of which I consider myself part of, which is I don't have the formal credential, um, but I have the passion and love, and have been working in the area for a long time. So, the short version is. I just fell in love with the people working on difficult topics in an ethical, interesting, and service-oriented way.
0: Well, that's a real commendation. Uh, You you start the book with a wonderful story about the ancient library of Alexandria that's been rebuilt in Egypt and uh, how the Egyptians demonstrated the library's importance to them during the uh, uprisings of the Arab spring back in 2011. Tell us that story.
1: So in, in the um, Arab spring uh, and the uprising, everyone was focusing on what was happening in Cairo, but the protests and such were occurring across the country, including in the port city of Alexandria, the place of the ancient library of Alexandria in the rebuilt one. Um, and it was an amazing situation. People were going to protest and as a way of countering the protest, the government um, basically opened the jails, sent in people to disrupt the protest, to take peaceful protest and turn them violent in some cases. And it really began um, a rather disastrous time when government buildings were lit on fire, um, when vehicles and things were being destroyed and as this mob of instigators began approaching the library, which was a government building. I mean, the Mubarak had built it and installed his wife on the, the board and could certainly be seen as part of this government. The peaceful protesters joined hand in hand around the building to protect it. M- men, women, and children protected this building. And by the time the Arab Spring had sort of finished, Um, not a rock was thrown against it. Not a window was broken. In fact, uh, the protesters approached librarians who were huddled inside this building. I mean, it was terrifying and they knocked on the door and the librarians opened it cautiously. And they said, is it okay if we put this, you know, huge flag on the steps of the, the library? And every day when the protesters would go out to march, they would put their hands on the flag on the, on the stairs of the library in order to, you know, say this is ours and we've reclaimed this for the people. Um, that is, a, to me, a story of when libraries work well. Um, after the, the protest, after the Arab Spring, after Mubarak had, lo- had stopped, suddenly mothers and cab drivers and all parts of society started walking into that library to learn about what was this social media stuff, what was this you know, Facebook and things that were used to organize. And it was really this reclamation of the library as a community asset and resource owned by and supporting and building the community. And the other part of that story that I I tell is that it wasn't because this was an extraordinary group of people. Clearly, it was an extraordinary group of people. But the way they had built this connection to the community, the way they had built this loyalty, the way they had built this, this ownership, was by doing their job, by answering questions, by providing resources, by being free and open to others. And so to me, it was just a, a, an extraordinary example of something that happens every day in libraries around the world of connecting to communities, building ownership, and enabling those communities to do extraordinary things.
0: It's a powerful image that you create. Uh, and The stereotype of a librarian is someone who answers questions, caricatured as a quiet, bookish, rather passive person who stays indoors and uh, doesn't do much until she, and it's usually a she in the stereotype, is asked. Uh, But your vision of libraries and librarians is radically different. Tell us what that is.
1: We've gone through sort of ages of, of how the public and the librarians perceive libraries from book palaces, where they were, you know, large areas of, you know, they were where you went to get books and materials. And then eventually librarians gained a little bit of, of notoriety of beyond the materials. And you had this whole image of the librarian was someone who knew it all. And there's a, a great Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy movie on the desk set. About librarians working in a news, um, in a for a newspaper, where you know Catherine Hepburn just recites massive epic poets from poems from memory and things like this, and then we moved into the concept that libraries became information centers, which is where you got databases and online connections. And what my vision, but I would say hopefully a shared vision, is that really libraries have become. Um, focused and built around communities. You know, if you look at the, the resources within a library, the books, the materials, the space, et cetera, is a pale reflection of the expertise that's in the community, right? You have people in the community that are, you know, authors and poets and community organizers and have a history and elders and et cetera. And so the role of the librarian and the role of the as an institution is less to collect things that aren't the community, right? All the books and materials about places and ideas that weren't developed locally to transform really into a platform for the community where the community can go and create. They they learn. And sometimes that learning is about (laughs) Einstein. Sometimes that learning is simply what books they enjoy reading. Sometimes it's about 3D printing, but it's all about this learning environment. And the role of the librarian isn't gatekeeper and protector of the materials. It is really a facilitator. It's someone who works with individuals in the communities to make smarter decisions and to find meaning in their life. And so that really is a, is a different idea in the popular, popular sense of what a librarian does. But if you look across those different ages in history, librarians have always done this. They just sort of emphasized it in a different way. Um, there, the, there were great, brilliant libraries in London in the UK in the 1800s, and people think, oh, of course, you know sort of Victorian and, and Edwardian ideas of, of great books and materials, but they had gaming parlors in them. They had places in the library where you can go and play billiards and you could go and play cards and such. And the reason was because they wanted to get the public out of the public houses, out of the pubs and into a more respectable environment. But this idea of always trying to you know, have a vision of how the community can be better, what's a better society, and then librarians using their professional skills in concert and really to amplify the effect of their communities to make that happen. To be advocates and to have a voice and to be uh, really organizers of, of knowledge, which is not stored in a book or printed, but is in people's heads and in, in the communities and the conversations, discussions, memories that they have.
0: Well, let's, let's go a little more deeply into that because... There are public libraries and school libraries, academic libraries, professional libraries, an increasing number of so-called street libraries, which have no professional librarians. Which of these did you have in mind when you wrote New Librarianship Field Guide? What, if anything, do they all have in common? And how can street libraries be curated
1: yeah, the, really, I had all of them in, in mind. And that was, uh, that was the different take in some ways in, in the field. Um, libraries suffer a lot, little about, uh, I, I call it Daedalus's maze. They get stuck in Daedalus's maze, which is they use the tools that they've so successfully organized collections and materials and books over quite literally millennia and they apply it to themselves. And the idea being, well, I'm not just a librarian. I'm a public librarian. And I'm not just a public librarian. I'm a a reference public librarian in a small rural town, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they just keep, you know, it's the old academic adage of, you know, take pond and keep dividing it until biggest fish in it you are. And I know that's dramatically (laughs) horrible, but but it's the idea I'm the world's expert in XYZ and You know, if it has to be really small, it's still on the world's expert. Um, And so my goal with this and what I think we're really seeing now increasingly around libraries in general is to be a much more unified concept. That is, when we talk about what makes a librarian, there's a couple of things. One, you know, there are three ways of becoming a librarian. There there are librarians by education uh, in the United States and in many European countries. They receive a graduate degree in library science. There are librarians um, by job title. Um, We have a situation not only in the U.S., but in many places around the world where you get hired as the librarian um, and you may not even have an undergraduate degree, but you're the one who's going to be the librarian and sometimes the postmaster and sometimes these other things. But you're given this title. And the third one, um, which I sort of throw myself in, which is librarian by spirit. These are the people who really have this idea of service and connecting people to ideas, connecting people to information, regardless of their title, regardless of their education. So there are a couple of ways of becoming it. But what actually makes a librarian, regardless of whether they're working in a public library or a school library or they're Catherine Hepburn working in that business library, is a mission and the mission of a librarian is to improve society through facilitating knowledge creation in their communities, which is just a big fancy way of saying librarians make the world better by helping people learn. They do it by, um, the methods they use in order to enact that mission, right? Because lots of people have that mission. Teachers have that mission. Publishers have that mission. Google may say it has that mission, but how do they do it? Librarians do it by providing access, Access to books and materials and things that no individual could afford in a community or very rare materials of preservation, or access to the world. Um, There are many libraries, academic and public in school, where they've set up studios to help people podcast, where they've um, loaned out musical instruments to help people create their own albums and stream music. So, access knowledge that is training. Um, to understand what they're doing, right? so it's one thing to walk in and say, "I want to do a podcast," and it's a very nother, it's, it's it's another thing altogether to say, "How do I do that?" <laughs> so providing <laughs> training, workshops, that kind of thing. They do it by providing a safe environment. Uh, libraries really should be safe places to engage with dangerous ideas. That involves keeping people's information private, so some not everyone's looking over your shoulder. That involves um, really providing a sense of sometimes physis- physical security in urban settings, for example. And lastly, they do that by understanding and building on people's motivations. In an academic library, there might be a lot of extrinsic or external motivation. That is, students who come in to use the library, because in essence, they've been told they have to go in and do this report, go in and look up this document. But where it really becomes spectacular and say public libraries are built almost ex- around the idea of intrinsic motivation. That is someone who does it for their own internal reward. So finding that great book, finding a new idea, exploring a hobby, developing and, and, and do these things. So librarians have a mission. The librarians have a method. But once again, not exclusive teachers can certainly say they have those. And so the last thing that really sets the library profession apart um, from many others is they do it around a series of values, of principles. Um, principles like transparency, principles such as openness, such as education, such as intellectual honesty. Um, we used to talk about librarians being objective or or neutral or unbiased, and um, really across just about every field, people have thrown away the concept that people could ever be unbiased. You know, just simply being in an environment and taking tax dollars or tuition dollars, you affect the environment. So that's what makes a librarian right. The mission the way in which they do it and the values, which, which they bring to it. And that, that was the thing that attracted me to the field. But those three things are true of librarians working in a small uh, rural high school. It could be true of people working in Harvard's libraries. It can be true of people working, you know, in Apple's corporate library, those things ring true. And so um, I think oftentimes when we think of libraries, we like to put people in these like, boxes and part a lot of what the intention of this book and my work was to say, no, 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 we're librarians. And we have a common bond regardless of the work environment that we're in.
0: And does a library require a librarian? Now there's and an interesting by definition. Fact. If it doesn't have a librarian, is it therefore not a library?
1: Um, so uh, I, I, I've been fortunate enough to be uh, memed a couple of times, things I've said, one of which I say is, you know, a room full of books is a closet and an empty room with a librarian in it is a library. It's interesting that th- the other thing that you sometimes hear is that librarians are, are, you know, they they sort of bemoan the fact that they name the profession after the building, um, though it's not true. Accountants were named after accountancies and such. But If you try to define a librarian by what a library is, you often find a real problem, which is you look up the dictionary definition of a library. It's normally basically a place with stuff that gets loaned out, which could be a lot of things. And so if, on the other hand, you say this is where a librarian does his task, once again, a librarian by title, a librarian by education, by spirit, what have you, they're serving their communities. That's what makes a library. And so, if you take on things like the Little Free Library initiative, where people build these lovely little free libraries, they're usually you know sort of cube uh, of boxes of materials. They put them in yards, they put them in different community centers, they load them full of books so that people can take the books, return the books, offer their own books, and etc. That's really a great concept, but I would argue it's not a library because what books go in it, what materials, what's the purpose, did anyone evaluate whether it's having an effect? Um, What kinds of of ways do we create other ways in which people can learn and engage? And so for me, the definition of a library becomes a a mandated and curated space, could be virtual or real time, um, stewarded by librarians, owned by the community, and ultimately, to, to the effort of helping people learn and, and sort of become and find meaning and uh, make better decisions as they move ahead. And so, you know, a lot of that's inside baseball discussion, right? So the book that we're talking about is very much gets into libraries. Um, the, common def, the common thought of a library being, oh, it's a place full of materials, et cetera. If we don't spend some time working with our community to understand what we're doing, then when librarians or other community members try and do different things, maker spaces in libraries, loaning out, there's a great li- public library in Wisconsin that loans out fishing rods. There's a gr- couple of libraries that have baking pan collections. That is, you know, you buy that. Elmo-shaped baking pan for that birthday cake for your child once, and then you're like, what do I do with it now? There are libraries that are taking those baking pans, you can go borrow those. And you sit there and go, wait, why is a library doing that? And the answer is because librarians are helping that community make better and smarter decisions, find meaning in their life that may be through baking, it may be through 3D printing, and maybe through reading. And that's the common thread that, that really holds them together. And so by reconceptualizing libraries beyond a, a sort of stereotype of it, it really allows libraries to be have a much greater impact in their community and be a much better resource for that community, whether that community is a school, a business, a township, or what have you.
0: One might legitimately ask, and I'll be a devil's advocate here to <laughs> ask it why do we need libraries in the internet age?
1: It's a great question. And if you, and it builds right on that idea, which is once again, if you define a library as a place with stuff in it, you don't, right? There's plenty of places to get stuff, but libraries, I think are even more important in an internet age than before for a couple of reasons. One, um, you still have the notion of collective buying the, the idea that, The famous quote that's out there is that information wants to be free, but the full quote is information wants to be free and information wants to be expensive. That there are resources that no individual could afford to get to or that different parts of that um, community may not be able to afford to get to. So that's a purpose, which is to sort of take whether it's tuition dollars or business dollars or tax dollars and buy things for the good of the community that no individual could afford or different parts of the community couldn't afford to access. But there's also the social safety net from everything's on the internet, which is not true. um, But how do I get on the internet? How do I access it, learn about it, find it? And once again, learn in a safe place so that I I don't feel like I'm being judged if I don't know how to do TikTok. I have a place where I can learn to do that. You've got... um, the community center. It's a place to share the expertise of a community. Um, There's a fabulous study done out of Norway looking at the purpose for libraries in general. And that was one of their initial thoughts, which is, okay, given this sort of internet capability and access, um, making huge assumptions about universal access, which we can come back to, do we still need libraries? And what they found was yes, because libraries become a place of consolidation, meaning I got lots of fragmentation in where I get my news, where I get my information, where I get my entertainment, a library can be a place to help me make sense of that and pull it together. It's a, it's a community space. Um, Oldenburg uh, wrote extensively about the idea of a third space. Uh, the first space being where you live, the second space being where you work. There needed to be a third space where you could be a community And in the internet age, what we've seen is that many, many former community spaces have disappeared or been pulled back from. Uh, The piazza in Italy has increasingly commercialized. Um, We've seen the idea of, um, you know, you don't go to town hall to be a community you go to town hall to engage in governance you don't go to the police department to be a community you go to the police department when you're interested in law enforcement and security and etc and so there are very few places left where anyone can come in to a public library and be there with everyone else and just talk about what does it mean to be together in once again in scandinavia and finland the national law that enables public libraries includes that the library has to have a democratic mission, that it must, infor- it must reinforce and build community and civic education around democratic processes so that they host political debates, they host topical areas. In the Richland Public Library in South Carolina, they've had a longstanding um, programs called uh, Difficult Conversations and Spent about race. And before the pandemic, they brought 50 people together on a regular basis to talk about um, black-white relations. They've had black elders sitting right next to former white supremacists to talk about these kind of topics. And when COVID hit, they moved it online and they had a conference call with over 100 people having this conversation. Where else can those conversations occur but in the library environment? And it's not just because it's a building. It goes back to the role of librarian. It's a safe civic civil place to have those different conversations so there's you know it's in the idea of if you look at the library as an information center you can certainly ask that question but if you look at it as a community learning resource and aspirations it becomes more important than ever I mean that's the other thing is that Back in the in the in the dark ages and the middle ages, great cities to show that they were great would build great cathedrals so that they could bring pilgrims into on religious sojourns. We don't build cathedrals in many parts of the United States, certainly, but around the world. But we build cathedrals to knowledge called libraries. Um, you look at the brilliant libraries in Oslo. You look at the brilliant, amazing libraries in Taipei. You look at some of these great things there is much a statement about a community wanting to be great and learned and smart as they are a functional space for collections and gathering so there are all sorts of reasons where the internet has made the library more important i mean there's the other part is that it's also made the librarian's job easier back in the day so i mean pick the day you want but let's go back in the 1980s if you wanted a document You might ask a library and they might have to do lots of searches and sort of scour the world and then get it through the post service and hand it to you. These days, you go to Google and you type it in and hope for the best. Well, that allows librarians to not worry about all the document delivery stuff and get right to the discussion and the interaction with the community member about what they need and where they can go from there. I'm I'm rambling a bit, but um, clearly I could spend about five hours on why we need libraries, but I'll stick there for a moment.
0: Well, you you made a very good case for uh, a statement in the book that struck me that uh, libraries create a civic environment because it's true there there are no other similar civic environments in in the world we live in. But libraries were once called uh, the people's university. Uh, do you think? it's still the people's university. And also maybe you can explain what it, what that actually means.
1: Right. So the, the notion, and you've also heard it referred to as the Agora, which is sort of back to, back to the Greek idea of community marketplace and coming together, but it's a marketplace of ideas. And the the university of the people means that um, when universal public education first happened in the United States, it was, it. we, I always like to say, you know, when we created childhood, right, we got rid of child labor and we invented this sort of area of protection around people under certain ages. Um, And we created universal public education, the idea that that part of the responsibility of the state, the government was to educate its populace. And that was founded, once again, in the larger concept that a people that govern themselves need to be educated so they can do it well. Parallel to that effort was creating public libraries. Um, You know, um, Melville Dewey, which is an interesting character in this story, but Melville Dewey once said that that a public library was a co-equal educational institution to public schools. When Carnegie uh, was building libraries around the world, one of the reasons he was building it was for... Uh, the notion that adults could go and learn and become educated outside of the school systems, that it was an important effort, once again, to have a people who govern themselves need to be educated and learn about it. And one of the fundamental differences you see between, say, a university setting is that it's very much inquiry-driven. That is, when people go into a library to learn, it's not, well, you go into this booth if you want to be an engineer, this booth if you want to be a, a writer. and this. It's, what do you want to know today? Let's Figure out and find it. And let's see whether that's getting you in touch with another person, an organization, a website, a book, a material. And so the individual really drives an authentic learning experience. We see many libraries, I mean, there's a huge area of academic librarianship about how libraries support traditional learning of different topics and materials, right? So if you start a new course in, um, civil engineering, you need to have materials and databases and journal articles and such that help that educational institution. In school libraries, we've seen this brunt move from the idea where librarians were sort of checking in and out books to the idea of, the library in, in schools, it's the largest classroom in the building, and it's the only instructor, the, the school librarian, that has every student in the building as their student. So it creates a sense of cohesion as well as providing resources to the learning environment. In public libraries, we've seen a real advance in several um, public libraries, including Los Angeles, including Chicago, including many of these. You can get your high school diploma in the library they actually are certified high schools that they can provide virtual education and learning um, for it as well. And so it it goes back to, if you look at the library as a place with materials or an information center, it could do anything. But if you look at it as a knowledge center, as a place of learning, uh, writ large, writ very large, um, then it makes sense to provide these kinds of instructional activities, kind of learning activities. Um, and it's built on people's passions and interests as opposed to some universal statement of this is the outcome you must achieve, this is the academic standard that you must meet. It really becomes a wide open space. And so a university, you know, not the academic institutional view of it, but the university as the idea of a learning space that is very much about education as opposed to specific training or or the idea of career preparation. It's a really pure version of that that you find in many libraries. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy
0: Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help
1: you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at That's olly.com. That's O-L-L-Y Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.
0: You uh, you mentioned earlier something about um, a, a library being assessed. I think you said, uh, li- how, how do you know that a library is having an effect Um, In the United States, more than half of adults over 16, about 130 million people uh, read below the level of a sixth grader. Would you say that libraries, besides schools, which we're not talking about today, have failed?
1: Uh, It's interesting how you slice and dice this. I think, you know, this is this is the the let me just put my rose colored glasses on for a moment. I would say that there's much more work for us to do. But it's interesting if you look at different aspects of educational attainment and you look where it is, um, there's hope um, in adult education, for example. So every in the United States on a regular basis, we provide standardized testing of knowledge around reading and knowledge about mathematics. In other words, do believe it's third grade and then again eighth grade and then in high school we give these standardized tests that say in essence can they read well and can they do math and what's interesting is as the farther you go into formal education in high school those grades those those assessments demonstrate that we are losing ability that is people have a greater sense of math and, and reading at fourth grade, and they do much more poorly by the time they hit high school. And so the more specialized and formal our education system goes, the lower the performance. What people don't know is that after high school, those tests are still given to random folks. And so there's a look in, in college and then look in career. And so if you take science, technology, and engineering, and mathematics, STEM as one example, what you find is fourth grade to eighth grade to um 12th grade, you see a decline in expertise among students or well, mastery among students. But uh, if you then keep going, you find that actually it jumps up. And so in STEM education, we go from a high school performance well below the top 50 international you know, countries internationally to number one. So how did that happen? Well, it happens through informal learning. It happens through on the job training. It happens through spending time on YouTube. And it happens through engagement with libraries, and so in many cases we see acts, we see some great performance. The other thing is when we talk about evaluation, the question becomes um, reading. And so one of my, one of your early questions about writing the book was it for academic or public, and the idea was all of them. Is you'll notice that some of my values and such didn't turn into literacy, i.e., reading, because if you're a university librarian, you're you shouldn't be. Worried about reading, that should have happened already. Um, but you are worried about sort of attainment and, and learning. And so, what we see is a broader sense of success, a broader sense of understanding that people learn not just in how they read, but in how they build and how they try things and how they engage in different ways. You know, literacy is, I think, you've identified a really crucial issue, which is we know that um, if students are not in the United States, if students are not reading at grade level by grade four, the odds of them actually completing high school goes way down. And if we know that in many populations, regardless of demographics, um, not attaining a high school degree greatly increases the chance of incarceration of people going into prison. And so literacy, the ability to manipulate and understand whether it's text, whether it's math, whether it's media, um, is essential. And libraries play a role in formal education and informal education. And yes, we can do a better job, um, but we also have to look at, you know, what the resources are to make that happen.
0: Well, you mentioned uh, architecture as well, and uh, that since we don't build cathedrals anymore, uh, a uh, a library that looks like a cathedral or a Greek temple is uh, indicates the value that we ascribe to libraries and wisdom and knowledge. Uh, many uh, libraries in communities that do the things that you've been talking about are storefronts in neighborhoods or boxes uh, in in old containers uh, that were once shipping containers or or maybe sculptures in gardens that uh, also have some shelves and are works of art uh, that fit into their environment what do you think is the important sort of the subtext of the particular architecture if any of a library <laughs>
1: It's been. I've had some great conversations with architects. It used to be that librarians and architects were sort of enemies because the architects wanted to build these beautiful mahogany places with, with um, you know, wood paneling everywhere and marble. And the librarians were like, we want everything on wheels and nothing that will stop a Wi-Fi signal. But architecture <laughs> has gone through its own revolution in iteration. Um, and talking to architects, you ask them what they do. The answer is we study what people do how they're learning, how they're working, what their day-to-day world is. And then we put walls around it appropriately, as opposed to we figure out what the walls look like and then people accommodate the space. And it's very much how librarians have started thinking as well, which is rather than saying, this is what a library is, period, done, enough said, it starts with what does our community need? And how do we build a facility if that's necessary um, to fulfill it? And so uh example was in the Dallas, Texas, and the Dallas, Texas has a main library in, in downtown Dallas and a huge number of branches out around in different communities. And they had gone through a gotten some major funding to go and revamp the physical spaces of these branches. And the the director at the time, uh, Corinne Hill, who's now a director of Chattanooga Public Library, sat down and as they were talking about how to design these branches, they had this document that was put together by the former librarian that said, this is what a branch looks like. X number of square foot put to this, a desk here, et cetera, in other words, a template. And what Corinne did is she threw away the document and said, all right, what does this community need? Because this suburb, this small urban enclave, for example, has a really strong arts and visual arts community to it. And so instead of saying, how many shelves do we need? They said, where do we put the gallery space? for, for the community to display and do shows, um, in uh, Chet and the Cuyahoga County Public Library, which is the sort of suburban ring around Cleveland, um, they would look at different communities and they looked, for example, within a primarily African American community. And they said, yes, they need books and resources, but they also need, um, from the community, they need places to capture um, elders' knowledge. They need places to um, build and do business development. They need different things than, say, in this community, which is very much about popular reading. And so the idea that libraries have standards and templates, which is very 1800s um, industrial model, has gone out the window, and it's much more about instead of talking about the library or even the future of libraries it's the libraries what does it look like in your community and how do we how do we fix it Um, I was just talking with a group of people looking to build a library in Ramallah and they didn't start with what books do we have available they started with what does this community need what are they struggling with what are they learning how do they learn it then we can begin to build um, working with great architects what that space looks like in Oslo, once again in, in Norway, they have built one of just a world-class outstanding piece of architecture, which is their new downtown library. It became a brand new vision from what it used to be. Downtown or main libraries in large urban settings used to be the place of last resort. It was like where all the reference books that needed people needed to get to once every five years went. Um, and they said, no, 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 this is going to be the downtown branch library. When they moved from their former space to the new space, they cut their collections in half. They got rid of half of the physical materials. And when I asked the the director, I said, is that for future expansion? And they said, no, partly it's because there's more digital resources, but partly because we knew that from working with community, we needed more space for collaborative learning environments, theaters, uh, experience spaces, reading areas. We needed more places for people. Um, And so that's what their library looked like. And then if you went to their branch in one community, which was an urbanizing, uh, sorry, not urbanizing, a uh, gentrifying uh, area, there were lots of people with lots of resources and such, but they were living in very small apartments that just That's how it turned out. And they needed a living room. And so the branch library there looked more like a coffee shop with literally a stage where they would have musical performances and such, and a really brilliant children's area on the second floor, which was almost more jungle gym than it was shelving, because they knew that that's what that community needed to. You drive 15 minutes down the road to another branch, and it was a book palace. They said, this community needs and wants book materials. And so it was stack after stack, beautifully done but the emphasis there was on collections. So just as architecture has shifted from this being a personal vision and statement of an individual as a creative act to this is a way of building a platform or tool to facilitate this kind of work or interaction. That's what we're seeing in public libraries as well. And so beautiful, beautiful libraries, because they're meant to inspire, but hopefully built around what function people want to achieve in that building. So that so, we've gone from a place where architects and librarians used to be at our odds to now very much on the same page because they've, they've adopted this concept of building around a community instead of building something and inviting the community in.
0: Uh, you mentioned in the book that a library is a, a platform for lending and sharing. W- what's the difference between lending and sharing?
1: So, um, Several years ago in the Ann Arbor um, District Library in Michigan, um, they built a, um, a new online system, a new catalog, right? So the piece of software that you go and you type the book title and says, here's the book. Um, they had a, uh, a member of the community come in, talk to the person who had built it and said, hey, you know how I can go on your system and I can find out if there's a book, <laughs> The librarian said, yeah, we get that. Says, and you know how it sells you whether that book is physically this branch or another branch? The librarian said, yep, I get that. He said, I've got a bunch of books in my house. Is there a reason that we don't just include my collection in your system so that if someone's looking for book X, Y, Z, it says it's at Dave's house and he's willing to bring it in next Thursday? That's the difference between lending and sharing. Lending is the idea of, you've got a a resource, a collection, a bunch of stuff, and you lend it out. You let people borrow it, but it's borrowing it from a finite collection, which is owned by an institution or licensed by an institution. Sharing is the idea of, yes, you may have that. You may be doing lending, but you're also opening that up to community members, their expertise, their materials. And it's a very different world because suddenly, once again, when you change your mindset from, We've got a bunch of things that we let people borrow to our job is to help a community has a bunch of resources, some of which may be a collection of books. Some of it may be a database. Some of it may be the expertise in accounting, what have you. Our job is to help the community get access to these things. It just is a broader concept and it sounds nebulous and it sounds a little bit like I'm splitting hairs, but it really think of it this way. You would not most people, once again, even with the most traditional view of a library, would have zero hesitation in saying, I have a bunch of books, I'm moving, I'm going to bring those in and see if the library wants it, right? So you show up at the front desk and you're like, here, I got a bunch of stuff, do you want any of it? That's, you know, we sort of expect that's what happens, et cetera. What if you walked into your library and said, you know, I happen to be a fill in the blank here. I'm a plumber. I'm um." i I, I repair clocks. I have this hobby. Can I share what I know? And so instead of just dropping a bunch of materials to be sorted through, I'm the material. Can you give me a stage? Can you help me organize a meeting? Can we do a workshop, etc.? That concept of is a sharing concept. I want to get in and share. And so a good example of that was the, the Fayetteville Free Library in upstate New York. Uh, they wanted to take on the issue of STEM education and girls, right? There was a longstanding, still is a longstanding uh, demonstration that when you look at children's interest early in formal education, like first grade and second grade, there's about an equal interest in careers in science and mathematics among boys and girls. By the time you hit middle school, and certainly by the time you hit high school, you see a huge drop-off in interest among girls in, in that field. And so there's a lot of, how do we fix this? And so a, a lending view of that might be, let's buy some books on engineering, buy some books on STEM, make great displays amongst them and, you know, loan it out videos, et cetera. But instead what they did from a more sharing idea is they had us, they created a summer camp so that girls could sign up um, and they would come into the library uh, for a month in the summer. And while they were doing that, they were getting hands-on STEM. They were doing 3D printing. They were creating, there's at one point they were creating catapults. And so people were walking through the, the library, these sort of you know, pom-poms were whizzing over their heads as these girls had created these things. But the instructors, the people who came in and talked about STEM, talked about careers in STEM were women from the community, which included, you know, people, professors and faculty at Syracuse university, but also fighter pilots um, at the local air force base that were coming and talking about the need for STEM education in that. And what's amazing about that is they're all community members. So when that, that, that camp ends, the, people remain. And so the relationships they've created, the network they've created, the ability to call up the fighter pilot and say, I'm interested in this, remained. And so sharing is a, is a broader concept and libraries are increasingly getting into that concept. Um, and it also comes in that it's a significant change in the underlying business model of libraries. The days when a library truly owned its collection, owned the materials it was lending, has really been over for about 40 years. Um, now, these days, libraries are spending more money on licensing resources, on renting resources, on getting access to online video services, etc. And so um, they're not lending things they own anymore. They're providing access to these things. And that's a sharing concept. And it also then allows what I think is fundamental and important, which is the community members can truly feel like they can contribute and co-own their library. Instead of it being a place they go and use, instead of a place that they go and consume things, the library can be a place where they go and they share things and they um, get access to expertise and get recognized for their uh, other individual expertise. It becomes a much more communal, from the community uh, route, way of thinking about How do we, once again, learn to make better decisions and find meaning in our lives? We can be an active part of that process instead of sitting and waiting for what the library decided to purchase.
0: Finally, David, if you're describing wonderfully creative libraries, I would just uh, like to get on a plane and visit them all now. Let's speak to the librarians and uh, library community owners here. Uh, Who are listening? What are the best ways librarians can create that sense of ownership in their communities from academic libraries to public libraries?
1: Well, let me give a a really specific answer to that, which is, of course, unlike what I've been doing for the rest of the thing. Um, I'll choose Fayetteville Free Library for a moment. They, um, every time you borrowed a book, or by the way, a E-reader or a sewing machine or what have you, they would give you a small piece of paper. And that piece of paper asked the question about what are you passionate about? Which is an interesting thing because not many people are used to the library walking, knocking on the door and saying, So, what's your passion today? If you know, are you willing to share your passion with the rest of the community? And so from that, when people would turn that paper back in, I have a passion in X, Y, or Z they began building whole new services around that level of expertise. And for, as an example, a preschool teacher wrote that she had a passion in early childhood learning and yes, she was willing to share it. She worked with the library to create um, literacy packets. And so a a parent could come and check it out and would have a board book and it would have some activity or toy related to that book because Early literacy instruction is the idea of creating uh, an idea that a physical activity can be represented in a word. It's sort of a pre-literacy skill. And so you might read a book on things that go, trucks and cars, and there's a little toy in it like a ball that you roll on the floor and it will roll back to you kinds of things. They created astronomy kits that were not only did they have evening um, star watching, but they you could check out a um telescope. They created electrical kits where you could take out different things. The point being that it came from a very, very, very simple question, which is not what do you need to know or how can I help you or, but what are you passionate about? And it turns out that when you ask someone what they're passionate about, you get a very different Level of engagement, relation, commitment, willing to try things, and from that small question, they, this library and many other libraries have adopted this, have created these astounding um, levels of service. In in Pistoia, outside of Florence in Italy, um, they literally built their new library, the San Giorgio Library, as the new piazza because the town over the deers had built over their town squares. So they built it as the new piazza and it had a wide open space. People would come in, it had a cafe so that people could hang out, eat, and have some coffee. And the library had a staff of about 10 librarians who were sort of opening it up. But every weekend they would put on 50, five zero different programs. Some of them were watching and critiquing movies. Some of them were metal and iron work. Some of them were cooking demonstrations. Those weren't the librarians teaching or doing those sessions. Those were the community members who would come in and share what they needed to know. And so when you look at libraries, going back to your first question about why did these people surround the Library of Alexandria so it wouldn't be damaged, it's because that was their library. And the more we can build it, more people see themselves not simply consuming or using it, But sharing and being part of it, of advocating and gaining power and gaining new ability in those communities, the better our library is going to be and the better our communities are going to be for it.
0: David, you've given us a new way to look at an historic institution. We'll never take libraries or librarians for granted again. Thank you so much for coming on the show today.
1: Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: And thanks to our own favorite librarian, Bela Pasikov. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please subscribe to the Van Leer series on ideas on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast platform. Bye-bye.